Hello, and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 56, where we go back, back to the to past. past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing, or in this case, this year of publishing. You yes. Can, you can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And you can pick us up on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and from New Galoff Radio. Mm. This week we have his books picked by a couple of very special friends of ours, Chris. Uh, yes. People very supportive. A fan. And a matter of fact, they purchased the comic for us, so we really couldn't get out of doing it, right? We had no excuse not to do it. <laughs> no excuse. <laughs> uh, this is picked by Ruth and Darren, who do the Trekker Talk podcast. You can find them at trekkertalk.com. Or uh, check out all of their different podcasts they have on the Rad Adventures Network. That's radadventures.podbean.com. They have three podcasts, right? Xenozoic. Xenophiles, Xenophiles, Warlord Worlds, Worlds, and and Trekker Talk. And Trekker Talk. And that should give you a hint that we're going to be doing Ron Randall's Trekker, Rites of Passage. This is an original graphic novel published February 2017. I think the first time we've done a book in the same year that it came out. For sure. Story, art, and coloring and letters by Ron Randall. Cover by Ron Randall and Jeremy Caldwell. Cover price is $12.99 USD, $17.50 Canadian, and it's published by Dark Horse Books. Yes, let's, uh, you know, as we always do, let's talk a little bit about our creator, and we only have one today. Only have the one this time, so this would be nice. And we're taking him right up to this year, so here we go. <laughs> there we go. This is, uh, of course, Ron Randall, born November 22nd, 1956. You would graduate from the Cubit School of Cartoon and Graphic Art, and I never know if I'm saying that right. Is it Cubit or Kubert or? I say Cubert, but that might be our New York accent. So that I'm might sure. be that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we will we'll, we'll continue doing that. <laughs> Now, uh, Mr. Randall's first published work was a two-page backup story titled Killers Above, Killers Below that would appear in Unknown Soldier number 243, that was September 1980 cover date, uh, with words by Robert Kaniga. Uh, Randall then drew several stories for the Sergeant Rock title, along with uh, Joe Cubitt, uh, as well as for many of DC's mystery titles. Ron and writer Gary Kahn, or Cohn would uh, co-create the Barren Earth feature as a backup to uh, Warlord that started in Warlord number 63, November 1982, Covet 8. And uh, the Barren Earth would spin off into a four-issue limited series in, in 1985. Uh, Randall became the artist on Arak, Son of Thunder series with issue 26. That was October 1983, Covet 8. He would collaborate with the writer uh, Greg Potter on the Me and Joe Priest graphic novel that came out through DC Comics, in which a barren dystopian future, a priest is the last fertile man on Earth. That's a very interesting concept. Uh-oh. <laughs> now, uh, Randall would also draw a few issues of Alan Moore's Swamp Thing run, as well as one of my very favorite single-issue comics of all time. Huh. That was uh, Tales of the Teen Titans number 55. Wow. Would you, could you believe yeah. that? Uh, he then Randall introduced his creation Trekker in Dark Horse Presents Number Four, January 1987 cover. Uh, he illustrated the Endless Quest, a Choose Your Own Adventure ripoff book, Conan on the Outlaw from 1984, and the Dungeons and Dragons Adventures to Find a King in 1985, and the Bane of Llewellyn in 1985, also a Choose Your Own Adventure type book. Uh, in 1992, he and writer Gerard Jones began the creative became the creative team on the Justice League Europe title. 
and he's a member of Periscope Studio in Portland, Oregon. This is an art of collective. We've talked about this before. Yep. Founded as Mercury Studios in 2002 by Matthew Clark, Terry Dodson, Paul Guinan, David Hahn, sure. Drew Johnson, Carl Kiesel, Steve Lieber, Ron Randall, Matthew Clark. Again, for some reason, Pete Woods and Rebecca Woods. <laughs> uh, in September 2011, Randall launched TrekkerComic.com, a website collecting all of the previously, un all previously published Trekker material. Upon completion of the posting the older material, Randall began to present the new Trekker stories on his site. And in 2012, Randall was commissioned by H&R Block to illustrate the tax liabilities of Batman and Spider-Man. Uh, the Trucker yeah. Omnibus, collecting the characters' appearances, was published by Dark Horse in 2013, and he has continued to write new Trucker stories, as we said, including Rites of Passage. Speaking of rites and pa rites here, of passage, here we are. Let's, let's set the table here. Uh, the year is 2226, and bounty hunter or trekker Mercy Saint Clair operates in the city of New Galaf or Galaf. Why are we saying that? Galaf. That's what I would say. Galaf. Galaf. Okay. I, I looked this up to see if it was a word. It's not. From what I can tell, it's own word. It's a part of a lot of words, but it's not its own word. I think so. so. So we will probably pronounce it about 17 different times, Most different likely, ways yeah. uh, here. <laughs> Anywho, the city itself looks like a pretty beaten up place, uh, but not exactly dystopian. Yeah, they call it retrofuturistic. So it's like, mm -hmm. you know, there are cars. People, you know, people are wearing a lot of padding, but they pretty things more or less look the same as you expect them. That's a perfect, perfect way to describe it. Uh, now, everything is run by a fairly overbearing bureaucracy known as the Council. Uh, now, the resistance to the Council is known as the Regal, or we think we think in Regal, R-I-G-E-L. I would have said Rigel, because that's the name of the Rigel. star, right? You're right. Let's do that. I will probably say it wrong every subsequent time. <laughs> but uh, Mercy knows someone down uh, with them named uh, Jason Bolt. Uh, she also has a girlfriend named Molly Sundowner. And I think that's all we need for right now. Yeah. So we open up in a seedy warehouse hangar of some kind. Some thugs are standing around and talking about local politics. Most important fella is a bald-headed guy named Les Musi. He's the guy that Marcy is swinging down from the rafters to see. So we should just say now, Mercy is kind of badass, like 1980s action movie hero badass. Yes, and our dialogue is very harsh and sarcastic, as we're, we're about to find out. Good for one-liners, I'll tell you what. You can pick it right out. Mm -hmm. uh, Mercy <laughs> isn't here for a bounty, though, just some information. She's looking for some off-world crooks and new Gelaf that the cops have lost. Laz tells her where they are and to be careful. Yeah, he says, just make sure you don't get blown off this time, girl. What are you? This is a special bunch, if you catch me. Mercy says, golly, you're concerned for my health is so touching. Lesmusi, what should I expect next? Flowers and chocolates? Then Mercy fires some kind of Batman-esque grappling gun and swoops away. She swings from a seedy part of town to an even seedier part of town, at, at which time she blasts open the door to a warehouse. Fish thinks to herself, since subtle isn't an option, an explosive round from the Grummer 34 feels like a good icebreaker. Who took subtle off the table? I don't know. Uh, the Grummer 34 <laughs> is her weapon. Well, it's like one of Mercy's weapons. It looks yes. like an old cowboy pistol. It's kind of one of the nice touches of this comic is that a lot of the weaponry looks classic, I guess, but some doesn't. I don't know. Uh, Mercy swoops into the warehouse, and then the action begins. Dudes are firing at her, and she's firing at them. And she's still swinging uh, in while firing. Yeah, we, we told you she was badass. Uh, Mercy finds that even direct hits from her gun don't knock these guys down. She somersaults through some bullet spray and slams into her target guy, all while still firing. 
the entire time. She never stops firing her gun with a pistol mm -hmm. in each hand. I mean, this is a very uh, action-oriented comic book, I'll tell you. Absolutely. Uh, Mercy finds that her mark is awfully solid. Thinks to herself, it's like hitting a cement pillar. Now, he grabs Mercy by the wrist, and it hurts like the Dickens. He throws a punch, so she fires point-blank in his face, revealing that he is a cyborg. Because the blast peeled away his synthetic skin, of course. Yeah, whatever, the old Terminator thing. Uh, yes. Taking advantage of Mercy's paws, he punches her in the face and sends her flying, an arc of blood spraying from her mouth as she goes. The bad cyborgs flee the scene, but not before leaving behind a grenade that she calls a CEV canister. Now she dives out of the warehouse just as it explodes with a ba-wham, and she lay in the rubble to consider her predicament. Thinks to herself, cyborgs in New Gellif. Lasmusi was right. I'm lucky I didn't lose my head. I'm certainly in over it. And Mercy visits her uncle, Alex Sinclair, St. Clair, a, a lieutenant in the New Gallif police force. This comic doesn't actually tell us about this relationship. Uh, we had to look that up. But that's okay. He's just a cop there as far as this story is concerned. He doesn't have much to add except to say that cyborgs are really expensive. So not normally the kind of thing kept by a street gang. No, and after pounding the pavement for Francis all day, Mercy keeps a dinner date at Molly's. Thinks to herself, Next day I turn from Alex to Lesmusi to every other contact I have and come up empty. Still, that evening I find myself keeping dinner date at Molly's, and despite myself, I stay for an extra drink. Now Mercy hangs around while Molly plays an old bacilla? Yep. Is that what the... Okay. <laughs> no, which doesn't seem to be an actual instrument, uh, but sort of looks like a bass uh, lute. Yeah, it's sort of like a cello metal lute. I don't know how to explain it. Uh, Caption, <laughs> she says, thinks to herself, uh, Watching a hands coax such music out of that old bacilla, graceful, powerful, passionate. It's like I'm seeing her for the first time, and I... I... Mercy touches a bandage on her head and gets a little dizzy. I have to go. Molly says, Mercy? Now Mercy sits down feeling worsey. I'm feeling woozy, not worsey. Uh, <laughs> Molly tries to help, but Mercy pushes her away. She don't need no stinking sympathy. She's a very independent lady. After some pleasantries about the music Molly played, Mercy takes off for her own apartment. On the way, she bumps into the same cyborg crew from last night. Uh, I also, we might mention that right now she's wearing a short black and white striped dress, dress and high-heeled boots, but mm -hmm. of course she still runs right into the action. Now this time, Mercy is equipped with metal-piercing rounds in her gun, and so she blasts through these uh, cyborgs with very little difficulty here at all. Um, whomever they're firing at seem to have some fancy weapons as well. Mercy thinks, electric scramblers, charge binding coils, an array of uncanny tech... And all of it I note with a sinking feeling of recognition, distinctively non-lethal. Turns out it's her old buddy from Rigel, Jason Bolt, and he's tangling with those cyborgs. Uh, Mercy is annoyed that Jason brought these robots right to her doorstep, but uh, we think she secretly enjoys it. Yeah, she seems to be having a good time now. Jason's with a teenage girl named Jekka, and they need Mercy's help desperately. Jason reaches into one of the broken cyborgs and pulls out a widget flange. And he says, look, Mercy, look close. You know what this is? High-end tech. Even for cyborg tech, only the council has the resources to develop something like this. These cyborgs are smarter, faster, deadlier than ever before. And they've been sent after this girl. 
that's how important she is. Wow, that's almost as big as Taylor Swift. Almost. Mercy says, important to who? Your mythical Rigel friends? To whom? Jerk. Worst kind of guy. <laughs> and yes, to Rigel, as well as to anyone else concerned with checking the power spread of the council out in the stars. Out in the stars. Exactly, Boat. That's just where you belong. So fire off before I... Mercy, please. You can't just close your eyes to this. Let me... Forget it, Boat. I've got nothing to do with Rigel. Never have, never will. Got that? That's okay. Jason and Jekka have one last safe house to try. Uh, the next day, Mercy is back at the new Gallif PD, looking up information on Rigel. I guess her uh, probably, her computer's probably pretty slow. I would think so. Uh, <laughs> now, her uncle Alex can't find anything specific about Rigel. A heck of a database they got there. Is there any uh, useful information on anything? Yeah, literally, go to the police. They can't tell you anything about anything. Uh, but she thinks to herself, it doesn't add up. Non-lethal terrorists, but no point in dragging Alex into this. Whatever it is. Sort of late for that, huh? Yeah, he went to him twice already. <laughs> now, back home, Mercy decides to try her own internet search, but turns up nothing. Then she gets a FaceTime call from Molly. Yeah, Mercy says, Molly, what's... I know it's late, but can you come over? It's important. Now Mercy rushes right over to Molly's apartment and discovers that Jason and Jekka are there. This makes Mercy really angry. She accuses Molly, on spying, uh, Molly of spying on Mercy for Rigel all along, even though Jason tells Mercy that Molly's no agent of Rigel. He says Rigel's been watching Mercy always, but because of her <laughs> mother. She was an agent of Rigel. Yes, Jason says, they say she was the best of us. This gives Mercy pause, and then she storms off angrily, which is the only way she storms off. Yes. Uh, Molly and Jason talk about Mercy's better merits for a while, then he and Jekka take off, so they don't, they don't attract any cyborgs to the apartment. Yes, uh, Jason and Jekka make it over to the New Gellif spaceport, uh, which kind of looks like Port Authority in New York City. Jekka says, ew, what's that smell, Bolt? It's the spaceport, kiddo. New Gallif isn't exactly a glamorous hub. Fortunately, it's so poorly run that there are always backups and delays. Confusion we, we can use as cover. But the cyborgs catch them instantly, like immediately the next panel. Right there. Uh, before the cyborgs can kill Jason and Jekka, Mercy swoops in to save the day. Literally swooping in, like on, a, on her line and firing her gun mm -hmm. at the same time, of course. Mercy chases them off and insists she's going off-world with Jason and Jekka, but not because she wants to protect them, only because she wants answers about her mother. For serious, she only wants to know about her mom. And that's it. She's not being nice at all. Nope. Now, eventually, they, they take off, and at the blue-collar Nautilus space station, they meet Jason's super-secret contact. He's a tall guy hidden in a cloak, holding an ornate staff. Name of Wiseau. Wiseau says, The rain falls only where the waters are needed. Then Jason says, each drop carries sacred purpose. And in Spain, I understand they fall mainly on the plane. <laughs> is this the girl? I am. That is not for you to say. Why so? Withdraws an ornate knife and holds it out to Jekka, and she grabs the blade of the knife. Some blood trickles down, but then the blade gl glows brightly. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely tearing him apart from what I can see. Wazo right. <laughs> <laughs> tells everyone to change their clothes and get ready to scram. Uh, nice of him to provide those outfits. Sure. 
Uh, we hop into uh, part two of the story, and Jekka is narrating and seems pretty impressed by Mercy St. Clair. Though, who can blame her? Yeah, Jekka says, she thinks to herself, her name is St. Clair, and she's pretty much a badass. That's about all I know about the Trekker. That, and the fact that she's pissed off most of the time. So she's got the uh, the ABCs on uh, on Mercy down pretty pat here. Still, I find myself sticking close to her as we shuffle through the port. It's weird, but I have a feeling that if I make it through this trip alive, it'll be because of Mercy St. Clair. Now, Wiseau uh, produces fake IDs for everyone made on the quick by Rigel, uh, to which Mercy is rather unimpressed. As usual. They... She's unimpressed <laughs> yes. by everything. <laughs> that, that, that is her uh, where she stands. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, they board a spaceship headed for, well, we don't know where just yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, along the way, Mercy and Jekka share a room. Mercy says, all right, kid, it's time for some answers. Who's trying to kill you and why? Where are we headed and why? And Jekka replies, I can't tell you. Look, Jekka, I know you're scared. You've been shot at and chased across planets with no one to look out for you but that gashead boat. You need me, and I know you know that. But I'm not going to be a babysitting with a target on my back without knowing the score. So tell me what's going on, or I'm out of here. Now. Then you'll have to leave. I can't tell you. You think this is a game? You think I'm joking? Those goons won't give up. Sooner or later, they'll track you again. Probably sooner, based on past results. You're not going to make it without me. And you won't have me without some answers. You get that? I get it, Mercy. I know what they'll do. I'm not stupid, you know. But I can't tell you. It's safer for everyone that way. And then Mercy gets up, begins to leave, and says, Safer for me, at least. I'll be out of harm's way completely. Thanks, kid. You've made this easy. I'll... And when she reaches for the door handle, decides not to leave, she says, God damn it. Mercy? Shut up, kid. Just shut up. Lesson learned, never tr- never try to bluff a teenager. <clears throat> they have no morals, no. so they'll go as deep as you want. Now, Wiseau and Jason also share a room and speak a bit more freely about what's going on. Uh, they're fleeing from the council, trying to get Jekka to a place called Sakane before they catch up. Uh, Wiseau also hopes that no complications arise from Mercy joining the team. What he means is he wants Jason to keep it in his pants, basically. Mm, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Jason assures him that he's 100% about the mission right now. Yeah. Now, over a week of traveling, everyone gets to know each other a little better, even laughing and cracking jokes sometimes. They take a walk in the ship's arboretum, which is like an enclosed rainforest with, like, full of wildlife and everything. And there, Jason and Mercy have a private conversation. Look, Mercy, we need to talk. First, I want to say I was sorry to hear about Paul. He was a good man. We had our differences, but... We're not talking about Paul Bolt. Okay, then then Molly. Uh, you have to know she's no agent. She signed an innocent petition a million years ago. It's just put her in, on our list as a possible sympathetic. I was desperate and just took Jacka there when you... We're not talking about Molly either, Bolt. Tell me about my mother. It's a very productive conversation we're having here. Uh, It seems that before she met Mercy's dad, Alan St. Clair, her mother, Jillian, was one of Rigel's best field agents. Sort of cuts an action-oriented figure, not unlike her daughter. Yeah, when she met Alan, though, she settled down, had a baby, and still provided Rigel with information. 
Yeah, Jason offers up. She set standards we were all taught to strive for up to this day, Mercy. Mercy, as usual, is dubious and wants proof, and Jason says they need to head back to Rigel HQ for that. Mercy accuses him of plotting to get her involved with his revolutionary group all along. Mercy says she can't trust Jason because she trusted Molly, and that turned out to be misplaced. I thought we weren't talking about Molly. Yeah, apparently that changed. Uh, so then she punches Jason in the face and lays him out. Why not? It's, it seems like Mercy really wants to be wanted by this group. Yeah, uh, but she doesn't, she doesn't want them to know she wants to be wanted. That's, that's more important than anything. But I think we know that she knows that she, they don't know that she wants them to know that she wants I think to you, be I part think of you them. might be on to something there, Chris. <laughs> Back to the story, an alarm goes off, and an announcement says that there's been a minor hull event. All passengers should get to their cabins and stay there until further notice. Mercy notes that the alarm rang once they got to the center of the Arboretum, which is the furthest from any exit. Wiseau notes that the alarm went off when Mercy decked Jason. And he actually uses the word decked here, which is sort of seems yeah. weird. He's, I mean, he's like a tall like monk almost, I took him as, but I guess he has some slang. Uh Sure. Now, from the trees come some assassins wielding funny-looking knives. And there is some fighting and slicing. Much of the slicing, thanks to Mercy. Turns out that Wiseau's staff shoots electricity, which, uh, as you might imagine, is kind of useful here. Uh, but he gets stabbed through the back by an assassin, which is a little less useful. Yeah. Uh, before Jason can be stabbed in the same way, Mercy shoots her grappling gun into his attacker's hand and then yanks herself over to kick her his 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 face in. Wasn't that a Mortal Kombat thing, right? Where you, where, yeah, but it was, yeah, there, was, there was the guy, <laughs> you know, you could shoot him, get over here, oh, but you go get over here. But you could also yeah. bring yourself to the guy. I don't know. It made me think of that. Uh, <laughs> now, after sinking Jack is safely in a tree, Mercy and Jason go ham on these assassins, and the assassins eventually retreat. Now, our team collects themselves and leave the Arboretum as well. Back in their room, Mercy tells Jekka to try and get some sleep before another round of assassins comes to kill them again. Uh, but Jekka is reminiscing about her youth on the planet Militar. Uh, she's cradling carvings of what looks like a chess piece and a miniature dog and is thinking back to when she got them. She thinks to herself, The day that Mother gave me the carving of Oris... Treasure this place, Jekka. Remember it always, she told me. And with a sadness I could hear in her voice even then, she added, because it won't be ours always. She kept repeating that to me over the years. But what would that mean to a little kid? Each day she seemed endless then. All I knew or wanted to know was my life on Millier with Mother and Oris and the smell of the hus fields in the summertime. I thought this place was called Militaire. Yeah, that might be one of a couple of uh, lettering problems, oh, okay. I call uh, <laughs> I, I knew who I was, what mattered, and how everything fit into place until the day Mother gave me a second gift and the story to go with it. A story that changed everything, that destroyed everything. In her memory, Jekka's mom hands her that golden chess piece, which appears to glow brightly. Jekka is awoken to Mercy cutting a hole in the wall to the room next door, which are, is where Jason and Wiseau are staying. I think I saw the uh, same thing happen in Porky's. You ever see that? I movie? think yeah. so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Was it Wiseau's shower? I think, I think we'll, yeah, we'll find out. <laughs> he wanted to know how her sex life was. Uh, <laughs> now, it's, it seems that bad dudes are coming, and they've got to leave through the back exit. And they got to make the back exit besides they're <laughs> that's that would help uh next door jason is cutting a hole in 
to the floor. Uh, now, they gain access to the maintenance tunnels of the spaceship. They rush to the escape shuttles, but are intercepted by some bad guys. Uh, people wearing street clothes this time, not a bunch of uniformed assassins, though. Yeah, I don't know why. I guess they ran out of the budget or something. But uh, Sure. So they backtrack to a, a different escape pod, I guess. And there, Jason tells them to get into the pod as he welds the door shut. Get aboard. This won't hold them long. Come on, Belt. We gotta... Seal the door. I'm staying. What the hell are you talking about? Get in here! No, Mercy. Well, have you lost your... Listen, Mercy. These pods weren't built for the distance you need to cover. The life support would never last for four. Three might make it. This isn't really your fight. Plus, you'll keep the girl safer than I ever could. And why Zo still has to make the contacts where you're taking Jekka. That leaves me the odd man out, wouldn't you say? And just then the bad guys are at the door. With a so long firecracker, Jason shoves Mercy into the pod and shuts the door. Yeah, Wiseau goes, strap in, woman. He's already punched the launch sequence. As they pull away from the spaceship, Mercy watches it shrink through a porthole window. There's a bright flash of light implying it or part of it has exploded. Wiseau tells Mercy that Jason would have wanted it this way. He covered our escape to the last, no matter the cost, he said. Mercy disagrees. She says, I always said Boat was suicidal, and now the twitchy priv has proven it. You can't mean that, St. Clair. What Boat did was sacrifice, not suicide. He acted to save us all. If he acted like a grown-up, we wouldn't be here at all. We could have met fire with fire. Instead, he pretended he could keep using his toys and tricks against those assassins. Like he was playing a game. It got him killed and stuck in this jackpot. If you're paying attention, Mercy almost had an emotion that wasn't based in anger or defiance. It was a close one, Ooh, but uh, God, luck it was there. You brushed that off. <laughs> now, that ends part two. We hop into part three, where our team is adrift in space. Uh, in a pod the size of a Volkswagen bug. Yeah. Uh, now, back in New Gallif, Molly has stopped by Mercy's apartment to feed her cat, Scuff. At least we're assuming it's a cat. It could be a tentacled alien pet for all we know. Yeah, it could be. A, I, really, we, I didn't see any animals, but she's feeding something. So uh, Alex shows up. He's looking for Mercy, but neither of them know where she's gone to. Molly ex ex suspects that Mercy did the right thing and went off-world with Jason and Jekka, and she's right about that. She is. In space, the escape pod starts beeping, which means it's uh, come within proximity of a planet. Looks like we made it. That's one miracle. The second will be surviving entry in planet fall. Brace yourselves. This little pea isn't much of a flyer, and I'm not much of a pilot. She ain't kidding. No. Uh, now the uh, pod skips along the atmosphere like a rock on a pond, then descends into the planet's, to the planet's surface, burning red hot as it goes. It lands in a swampy-looking forest, and everybody turns out all right. Wiseau suggests that they set up camp for the night and then head out fresh in the morning. Uh, Mercy still has no idea where they're going, and neither do we, really. Uh, all we know is that it's called Sakane. I guess. Um, well, that's sure. the planet. We're not, it's really unclear, but okay. Yes, we, 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 we will find out. Destination. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, while eating some cooked animal beast yeah, sort something. of thing, uh, Mercy says it's time for Jekka to fess up. Jekka holds up that golden chess piece from earlier. Know what this is? It's a trinket from House Canudos. My family ruled here for like 150 years or something. I guess we were good at it. 
It was called the Golden Canutos era. Anyway, I was four when it ended. It was a golden era, and it's taken only a blink of an eye for the council to ruin it. Forty years ago, as the council first began to centralize, it looked to be thriving rim worlds of cane as baubles ripe for the picking. Over time, they took advantage of minor factional disputes, superstitions. In the end, they waged an insidious war of lies, terror, and assassination. Their target was a Canatos family, because the head of that family is always the leader. The voice of Sakane. Finally, Jekka's father fell to the assassin's blades. The council then moved swiftly to search out every strain of Canatos' blood. But, unknown to them, loyalists were able to whisk Jekka and her mother away to Militer, where they remained hidden for years. Until Jekka, who carries the blood of the voice, came, <laughs> came of an age to ascend to the seat of rule. The council has set up a false voice of their own, but the ruse is transparent to all. The return of a legitimate heir to Canemo's bloodline will galvanize the tribes. Oh, you're tearing me apart, Lisa. <laughs> I was second-guessing that one the whole time. Oh, I was so... Uh, I, had to, I had to mute for a second. Oh, goodness. Anyway, we, we hope this plan works, that's for sure. Yes, of course. Uh, now, Mercy suggests that trying to take over the planet is in one action is pretty nervy. Uh, Wiseau suggests that she doesn't. Uh, if she doesn't like the plan, she, she can skidoo. Ah, great. Thanks for that. I see Bolt wasn't the only suicidal fool I've taken up with after all. Now, the next day, they head out on a river raft. Wiseau says the swamps are treacherous, but they, they're close to a tribe that will accept them, uh, that should accept them, he clarifies. Yeah. Then a giant crawfish upends their raft. Uh, Mercy tries shooting it, but even with her cyborg piercing bullets, she can't crack its shell. So Mercy does some acrobatics and comes down on the creature from above, wedging a spear in between its shell plates. It flings her off. Now, Wiseau suggests that Mercy attack its soft underbelly, which is covered in a lot of gross-looking polyps. Uh, as it rushes toward her, Mercy fires another uh, round after round into the guts of this monster, and eventually it falls. When the dust settles, Jekka is gone. Uh, uh-oh. Wiseau and Mercy call for Jekka, then notice she's being held by some tribal folks. Mercy is ready to shoot them all, but Wiseau says... There will be no need. Yeah, he whips out the sacred blade and walks over to have Jekka perform the glowing knife trick again. She does, and everyone bows. At the village, the tribe says that Jekka must reveal herself as one of the Canutos bloodline at the central square in the city of Tipul. Uh, it seems to be the planet's capital, I guess. This is where mm. the council's fake rulers hang out. That's where they, they installed the senate. Uh, Wiseau says that Mercy must hang back during this big reveal. This is a local political matter, but she's not having that. No, the next day, they're at Temple Square, and it's bustling with people. It looks more like Times Square. This is the plan. Are you insane? Can't you see what's happened here? Sure, there's council firepower on hand, hardware and boots on the ground, but that's not the problem. Look at these people, Wiseau. Their faces, the way they shuffle along. Yep, definitely looks like Times Square. Their own local security police far outnumber the council's goon squads, but they've been totally cowed. You think some stage trick with a fancy knife is going to make everything better? Hey, it worked for King Arthur, right? Sure did. Uh, the tribe approaches a long set of steps with Jekka, but the police stop them and taunt them with slurs. When one reaches for a knife, Mercy throws back her cloak and rushes into the fight. 
Things are about to get hairy. The fight seems to be about to start. But then from atop the stairs, Wiseau holds the sacred blade and calls out. With all eyes on him, he reaches to grab the blade himself. No longer will we heed the words of the false voice. No longer will the council rule us with their deceits. Only the blood can grasp the chalak and live. All know this. Now, as Wiseau Bloods leaks down the blade, it glows, and the government changes Uh-oh. hands right on the spot. That's it. Uh, that pretty much <laughs> did it right there. Uh, Mercy, Mercy sees she's been tricked. Along with everyone else, so uh, she really shouldn't feel too bad. Yeah, I don't think it personally. She says, I was wrong. Not a sacrificial, sacrificial lamb, a decoy. You played us. Played us both. Played everyone. Yes, and I am sorry for it, but I do not regret it. It was necessary. As long as the council would focus on Jekka as being in their danger, we could hide from them a less prominent relation who has also escaped their blades. Me. <laughs> but, but we had to keep that a closely held secret. It was the only way. Wiseau says Mercy will get a safe return to Earth and plenty of credits. Uh, that's money, by the way, in case yes. you don't know the uh, lingo of sci-fi. <laughs> uh, he says he'll also give Mercy contact at Rigel so she can ask about her mother. Mercy typically is ungrateful and unimpressed by this, but she mm. will take the money and trip home. She's not a, a moron. Uh, Jekka says she's, that she's going to stay there on uh, that planet despite being used by her brother or cousin. I'm not, I never really was clear what his relation is, right? They're her kin. They're her kin, her, whatever he is. But uh, Jekka says that she has to play a part to play there and that she was glad to be part of something meaningful, something more. And so can Mercy, she says, if she goes home. Yes, we uh, go to Molly in Caption. Sometimes the universe feels very small, pinched and cluttered with the mundane details of living. Lock the shop, keys into the purse, head home. A place for everything and everything in its place. But with something missing, something big. Sometimes the universe feels dizzying and limitless, filled with the infinite miracles of creation. When I think of the immeasurable distances that mercy has disappeared into, the universe seems vast and heartbreakingly empty. Take the key out, open the door, fix some dinner, and check what's on the neb. Sometimes, sometimes... Molly's heading to her apartment here and puts the key in the lock. Behind her stands Mercy, looking sheepish. She says, Molly! Molly, I... And Molly puts a finger to Mercy's lips and looks at her with some understanding. Molly's caption continues, and then sometimes the universe seems just perfect. The end. Mm-hmm. So that was our first Trekker book, I believe. Isn't that right, Chris? Yes, it is. Definitely my first Trekker book. Uh, I found it to be a quality book. Uh, Absolutely. You know the 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 nuts and bolts of the storytelling, the art, the you know a couple of like I said, small typos, which is not really anything to speak of. We get plenty of typos and comics running the gamut. I was going to say, they, they'd, have a, they'd have a lot more mistakes to make to be a Marvel book. Exactly, yeah. They're not quite, not quite <laughs> on that level of typos. So, uh, uh, you know, it, it was good. I like, I like the general sci-fi, you know, aesthetic. That's, that is my kind of aesthetic. Sure. And specifically this, which would be kind of a softer sci-fi. I, I like it, uh, you know, mid, lightly scientific, we'll say. I don't know. Uh, like a noir science, like a nori science sci-fi is. Definitely, yeah. Like, this is yeah. essentially a noir-type uh, 
story set in a sci-fi thing. And I mentioned a couple of things that reminded me of, like uh, Stainless Steel Rat series by Harry Harrison, or even Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency by Douglas Adams. Uh, these are similar books to me that kind of hold the same kind of serial uh, world of, you know, mm. a future semi-dystopian, I don't know, uh, you know, retro-futuristic, they call it. That's uh, a perfect term, yeah. It's like it, urban decay, but still, you know, super tech. But it was uh, it was definitely cool. I think it's definitely really cool that Ron Randall's been able to do this since 87. Now, Absolutely. It, now it seems to be his bread and butter, his main thing. And then there are new... Uh, pages on his website, which is mm -hmm. uh, comic It's at the bottom. Uh, <laughs> so you know, you definitely go follow him. He's got he, he he seems like a real good guy. And you know, I'll tell you something, Chris. You know, usually now is when we'd take a break and come back and wrap up our creator bio. We'd have a whole bunch of more information. However, the problem with this wonderful pick by uh, the, by uh, the folks at Rad Adventures, ones, yeah, yeah uh, Ruth and Darren, is that. Uh, you know, there's one creator, and he's not very controversial. He seems to have made no. a lot of friends in the industry, and people like <laughs> yeah, him a lot. He seems and, like uh, a decent dude. <laughs> he's, he's pretty much gotten, you know, a good amount of work. And We don't have any angry tweets to, to disassemble? Ex or? Yeah, yeah, no crazy comments or, you know, antics. <laughs> you know, he really, you know what I mean? This is really was just kind of the story of, like, a, a accomplished uh, dude in comics. So mm -hmm. uh, that left us without our usual hook. But, yes. <laughs> but I decided that we would uh, look at science fiction uh, and how mm. it relates to comic books because, in fact, they are directly related, as we're, as we're going to show, that one mm -hmm. sort of came into another. And I would like to just point out at the top that if you read superhero comics, you're reading science fiction books. The very concept is, dun, dun, dun. is science fiction. I know, it seems to be shock some people. They, don't, they think they're reading some sort of uh, special genre unto genre, its own, but yeah. it basically is just another type of science fiction. So, uh, just to define it, science fiction is a genre of literature containing some or all of these concepts. A time setting in the future, an alternative, in alternative timelines, or in a historical past that contradicts known facts of history or the archaeological record. It could also be a spatial setting or scenes in outer space, for example, space flight, on other worlds, or on a subterranean Earth. Or it could be characters that include aliens, mutants, androids, or humanoid robots, and other types of characters arising from future human evolution. Mm -hmm. Or a mixture of those. Yeah, <laughs> we have, that's uh, right. Futuristic or plausible technologies such as ray guns, teleportation machines, and humanoid computers. Uh, scientific principles that are new or that contradict accepted physical laws. Uh, for example, you know things like time travel, wormholes, or faster-than-light travel or communication. Uh, also, new and different political or social systems. Uh, for example, utopian, dystopian, post-scarcity, or post-apocalyptic. Those also could include paranormal abilities such as mind control, telepathy, telekinesis, and other universes or dimensions that travel between them. And like you said, or a combination of any of these things uh, yes. would equal some science, science fiction. It differs from the fantasy genre in that it must normally be grounded in some scientific fact, although that's a really loose, you know. I mean, you could be grounded in, like, yeah. gravity is your basic grounding and then take wherever you want <laughs> from there. Uh, it can be difficult to pin down what science fiction is because its definition is really broad. Uh, author and editor Damon Knight summed it up the difficulty saying, science fiction is what we point to when we say it. Sounds good to me. Right. 
<laughs> we've got to talk about some early uh, science fiction here. We have A True Story, which was written in the 2nd century AD by the Greek-speaking Syrian satirist Lucian. Uh, the, this is the earliest known story about the earliest known fiction about traveling to outer space, also alien life forms, and interplanetary warfare. Uh, 10th century Japanese folklore, uh, The Tale of the Bamboo Cutter, which is also known as The Tale of the Princess Kagua, is about a beautiful princess who is actually from the moon. Uh, some of the stories in one, 1001 Nights, known colloquially as in America as Arabian Nights, uh, the first English edition published in 1706, could also be considered science fiction. Uh, these uh, stories go back at least as far as the 11th century. Yeah, so well, we only know it from when it was translated and published for uh, you know English speakers, but yes. those are really old stories. Now, the Enlightenment, or the Age of Reason, that swept Europe in the 17th century brought scientific basis into the mainstream, and so increased the instances of science fiction. Somnium, which is Latin for the dream, was written in Latin in 1608 by Johannes Kepler. It, ke it was not published until 1634 by Kepler's son, Ludwig Kepler. It contains a detailed imaginative description of how the Earth might look from the vantage point of the moon. Carl Sagan and Isaac Asimov have referred to it as the first work of science fiction. Now, other science fiction works of this period include Cyrano de Bergerac's Comical History of the States and Empires of the Moon, that was in 1657, and also his The States and Empires of the Sun in 1662. That was the follow-up, uh, I assume, the sequel. Yeah, I would, I would assume so. Yeah. Might be the first sequel. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, Margaret Cavendish's The the Blazing World, that was 1666, Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels in 1726, Ludwig Holberg's novel Nikolai Klimi Iter Subterraneum uh, in 1741, and Voltaire's Micromegas in uh, 1752. Now we get into some more familiar territory in the early 19th century. Mary Shelley's books Frankenstein in 1818 and The Last Man in 1826 helped define the form of the science fiction novel. In 1835, Edgar Allan Poe published a short story, The Unparalleled Adventure of One Hand's Fall, in which a flight to the moon in a balloon is described. Uh, John Leonard Riddle, uh, a professor of chemistry in New Orleans, published the short story Orrin Lindsay's Plan of Aerial Navigation with a narrative of his explorations in the higher regions of the atmosphere and his wonderful voyage around the moon in 1847 on a pamphlet. That yeah. must have been a huge pamphlet just to fit that title. I heard the story was half as long as the title. <laughs> It might be. Now, uh, the story contains algebra and scientific footnotes, which makes it an early example of hard science fiction. Yeah. Uh, nearing the Industrial Revolution of the late 1800s, science fiction stories became more and more common, as you might imagine. Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth in 1864, From Earth to the Moon, 1865, and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in 1869 are all classic science fiction books. The Brick Moon is a story by Edward Everett Hale in the Atlantic Monthly in 1869, and it's about an artificial satellite made of brick. H.G. Hmm. Wells' The Time Machine in 1895 and The War of the Worlds in 1898, which are about a time machine and alien invasion, respectively. We have Erewhon is a uh, novel by Samuel Butler that was published in 1872, which deals with the ideas that machines could one day become sentient and supplant the human race. Now, this guy's interesting. The, the newspaper man Edward Page Mitchell would publish his innovative science fiction short stories in The Sun for more than a decade. Mitchell wrote about a man rendered invisible by scientific means, 
This was called The Crystal Man, published in 1881, before H.G. Wells' The Invisible Man. Wrote about a time travel machine, the clock that went backward before Wells' The Time Machine. Wrote about faster than light travel, the techie pomp in 1874. Uh, a thinking computer and a cyborg he wrote about in 1879. That was the ablest man in the world. And also wrote the earliest known stories about matter transmission or, you know, teleportation in The Man Without a Body in 1877. He wrote about a superior mutant who was called Old Squids and Old Spella and Little Spella. Uh, and also exchanging their souls in 1877 is one of the earliest fictional accounts of mind transfer. Uh, the second best-selling novel in the U.S. in the 19th century was Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward, 1888. This was a look at the distant future based on then-current society. Uh, in 1894, Will Harbin published Land of the Changing Sun. This was a dystopian fantasy set at the center of the earth. In October 1896, the Frank A. Muncie Company's Augusy magazine was the first to switch to printing only fiction, and in December of that year, it began using cheap wood pulp paper. Now, this is regarded by historians as the beginning of the, quote, pulp era. And this is where we start to converge with comics right here. Mm -hmm. uh, but there was still was other science fiction being published out there. It was We had Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court from 1899. This deals with personality transfer. Twain called it a transmigration of souls and a transposition of epochs and bodies. The novel also sort of predicted World War I, but, you know, in a <laughs> way. It predicted a big world war. Uh, Ed Edgar Rice Burroughs, that's the Tarzan guy, his first story, Under the Moons of Mars, was published in 1912. And L. Frank Baum's series of 14 books uh, from 1900 to 1920, that would be Wizard of Oz, Land of Oz, those, uh, this is all based in his outlandish Land of Oz, were certainly science fiction. They had mechanical men, strange weapons, alternate dimensions, all that stuff, you know, that definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, now, Jack London's novel, The Iron Heel, published in 1908, is about a dystopian future in London. Uh, London's short story, The Unparalleled Invasion, was first published in McClure's in 1910, and it's about germ warfare and ethnic cleansing. Uh, London's short story, The Red One, first published in Cosmopolitan magazine in 1918, involves extraterrestrials. And I'm no expert on him, you know, but I definitely consider Jack London the call of the wild, you know, naturalist yeah. guy. I was surprised to see all this science fiction That stuff. is odd, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Uh, specific literary genre magazines began to be published in the U.S. right around 1920. The first magazine devoted to any one genre entirely was Detective Story magazine, featuring all crime-related stories published by Street and Smith in 1915. They would follow with Western Story magazine, a title that focused on, well, I mean, you can pretty much put it together from the title. Uh, yeah, I think I got it. You think you know um, what it is? Okay. <laughs> now, the first specialized English-language pulps with a leaning towards the fantastic were Thrill Book in 1919 and Weird Tales in 1923. Uh, the latter was considered, considered the premier fantasy publication for two decades. Now, these lean more towards the occult than the scientific. But we're getting there. Uh, yeah. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, that's the Sherlock Holmes guy, guy, published Professor Challenger stories in the early 1900s and 1910s in various magazines, even a couple into the 1920s. Rudyard Kipling, that's the Jungle Book guy, contributed heavily to these publications and is considered by some to be the first modern science fiction writer. Now, these stories were known as science romance or different stories, as advertised on the magazine covers since... 
The term science fiction was not yet coined. Uh, in 1926, Hugo Gernsback founded Amazing Stories magazine, which was the first U.S. publication devoted entirely, exclusively to science fiction stories, uh, though science fiction magazines had been published in Sweden and Germany before this. Uh, Hugo came up with the word scientific fiction, which would become science fiction. And the following year, the one thing, of course, uh, that contributed probably most to the popularity of science fiction, because it wasn't a book, was Fritz Lang's movie Metropolis, and it debuted in theaters. This is a German expressionist movie set in a futuristic mechanized dystopia. So, in 1930, Amazing Stories changed its content to purely science fiction, and a rabid fandom was born. Indeed, the very first fanzine came out that very year. It was, wow. It was The Comet. Published by the Science Correspondence Club in Chicago. I want to become a member of that club. Uh, the term fanzine would be coined much later by Russ Chauvenet, a, a champion chess player and sci-fi fan in 1940. One of the editors of the comment was a fellow named Raymond Palmer. Hmm. Uh, Jerry Siegel, we, you know that name, he started a fanzine in 1929 called Cosmic Stories, set on a manual typewriter, but by most accounts... There were only a handful of copies produced, and it never left Cleveland, really. Yeah. Now, uh, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster would produce a more circulated fanzine called T Science Fiction. That began in around uh, 1931. Issue 3 contains Siegel's story, The Reign of the Superman, uh, illustrated by Joe Schuster. Uh, this is recognized as the first instance of their creation, Superman, though this version, of course, is that bald villain with yeah. uh, telepathy and telekinetic powers. Looks, uh, you know, very, very little like the one that we know. Yeah. Uh, in uh, 1932, New York City-based science fiction fan club, the Scienceers, <laughs> produced the... I love that name. Uh, yep. <laughs> they produced the fanzine The Time Traveler. Uh, membership in the Scienceers included Mort Weisinger, Julia Schwartz, Alan Glasser, and Forrest J. Ackerman. Uh, the zine's chief claim to fame was its publication of the 17-part round-robin story called Cosmos, and that ran from July 1933 through December 1934, and each part was written by a different writer. Yeah, and they were all they're all fairly, fairly well writers of the time. I didn't list them mm -hmm. because I don't think they have a lot of name recognition now, but sure. look, looking into it, they were not nobodies. It was probably interesting. Yeah, no slouches. Yeah. Uh, in late 1934, Weisinger and Swartz approached the editor of Amazing Stories. This was a fellow named T. Connor Sloan, and sold their first story, The Price of Peace. It was written by Mort Weisinger. Schwartz and Weisinger also founded the Solar Sales Service Literary Agency. 1934 to 1944 was an operation where Schwartz represented such writers as Alfred Bester, Stanley G. Weinbaum, Robert Block, Ray Bradbury, and H.P. Lovecraft. He included some of Bradbury's first published work and some of Lovecraft's last published work. Schwartz also helped organize the very first World Science Fiction Convention in 1939. Now, in 1940, Weisinger took a job with Standard Magazines, and then in 1941 became an editor for National Periodicals. In 1944, Julie Schwartz became an editor at National as well. They brought with them not only a healthy love of science fiction, but also some writers, like Alfred Bester, Otto Binder, and Edmund Hamilton. Now, the latter two of those, as many of you all know, have yeah. wrote comics for decades. We, we've read some stories on this very show from some of those guys. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Now, and the rest, more or less, 
is history. Uh, Ray Bradbury contributed several tales to EC's science fiction line, but as comics became contraband in the 50s, most, le- quote, legitimate authors wouldn't get caught dead uh, publishing right, with them. Right, yeah. Uh, now, though it is worthwhile to add that these science fiction pulps and fanzines, many of which persevered into the 1950s, uh, combined uh, story and art on a page. And uh, thus uh, conceptually morphed into uh, some of the first comics with original work, and especially one of the most popular science fiction concepts of all time, the superhero. That's right, you know, and and to to keep going on, you know, we talk about the science fiction books that were around, you know, Strange Adventures, Adventures in Space, they all had a line uh, to this mm-hmm. day, you know, there's a strong science fiction trekker right here as an example of science sure. fiction in comics, so... Uh, it's it's definitely a huge contributing genre, as well as I believe it really is the origin of the format in a way. You know, uh, it, it's you yep. know, funny reading all this history, learning all this history about comics. You see how all these factors kind of came together at a nexus. The perfect storm. Yep. It, you know what I mean? Like it's, if any one of those things had been out of line, if you know Max Gaines hadn't felt like putting comic strips into a pamphlet, if you know uh, Julie Schwartz had decided to stay a literary agent longer, it, it all would have gone way differently, but uh, it all came together, and science fiction played a big part of it. Mm-hmm. And, and if, if anybody questions the uh, the value of it in the Golden Age, you certainly can't in the Silver Age. Mm-mm. No. That was the basis of everything. That was the, you know, mm-hmm. Julie Schwartz's revamping of all the Golden Age heroes was all based in science quote-unquote. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> sort of science. Although, like we said, the, the very concept, even even if a superhero is given powers due to magic, the very concept of a Uberman is a science fiction concept. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But, it, but, yeah, you're right. I mean, in the space age, during that time, the comics were all about, you know, pseudoscience. And then it just makes you think mm-hmm. of, like, Jack Kirby's machinery, uh, the sure. fact that Reed Richards, so many of these guys, Reed Richards, Tony Stark, uh, even to an extent Doctor Strange, although he was really a all surgeon, yeah. all scientists, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a strong science streak running here in the uh, four-color comic books that we love to talk about so much. But if you want to go check out Ron Randall's Trekker, I think all of it is available for Pekinat, at least on uh, mm-hmm. trekkercomic.com, and there are new updates every Monday, uh, and there's tons of content on the website. Definitely, I recommend everyone at least give it a look and see what sure. we read. That would be nice. You know what I mean? You could kind of <laughs> see what we were looking at this whole time. Uh, but if you want to talk to us about any of this, if you want to contact us about Ron Randall or Trekker or science fiction, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can look us up on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic T-mill history. On Twitter at cosmic T-mill. And I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. Find our weekly writings at weirdsciencedccomics.com and daily writings at Chris's personal blog, chrisisaninfiniteearth.com, which you've just been spitting them out, boy. What, what, what's it been this week? I uh, did uh, some Green Lantern, uh, what is it, uh, Rebirth. Yeah. The, uh, the, uh, so, I, so I no longer have to say Rebirth, the first one. I can just actually link to the just, first Rebirth. Just the first Rebirth, yeah. <laughs> uh, you did some of that. I saw today you had uh, Superman, Clark Kent fighting Superman, and now you look like a Bronze yes, Age action the, comics. The, uh, the first Clone Saga. Yeah, you, you, it's, it, it's so great. I love the fact that it jumps... Through so many eras of DC Comics, it really is like a uh, smorgasbord of 
DC goodness, both the, you know, mm. actually good comics and the so bad it's good, and sometimes so bad it's bad comics. They all they really sometimes. run the <laughs> they really run the gamut <laughs> over it. Chris, so definitely check that out. Chris is an infiniteearth.com. Now, we uh, definitely want to send our thanks again to uh, the Sutherlands, our Ruth and Darren uh, from the Trek Talk podcast for beautiful sketch on the inside of it from uh, Mr. Randall himself, and uh, but for all of their uh, support for our show. Definitely. Uh, of course, you can you can check them out at trekkertalk.com and check out all of their stuff at radadventures.podbean.com. And like we said earlier, that's the Trekker Talk podcast, the Warlord Worlds podcast, and the one that I will always butcher, Xenozoic Xenophiles. Okay. There we are. Uh, I have a feeling we might need to dig into that one next to figure out what is, what is that. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's like a uh, never-unfolding Cadillacs world. and dinosaurs. Yeah. yeah, it's uh, something with something I definitely am interested to know more about. But I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? Nope, that'll do it. Well, until next time, folks. I want you to keep it on the treadmill, science fictionally. Science.